Hi guys, and welcome to two podcast Invest in You with Fredrik Samval. And today we've got a special guest who's also got a podcast. So welcome to the show, Sari. Hey, Fredrik. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, what's your podcast name? It's called Thinking Like a Bank. Yep. And uh, where we show people how to think like a bank using the same strategies and principles that banks use to help people find more financial freedom in life. Lovely. Perfect. Yeah, I also like to own a bank or to be the bank. So I can mm-hmm. completely relate to that. And we've got so many similarities in terms of understanding and liking finance as well as real estate. And we also got this bug of helping each other. So let's mm-hmm. take it from there. So for the audience who got no idea who you might be on my channel, Invest in mm-hmm. You, who are you and where are you today? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, so I am Asari Ibrahim, the founder of Financial Asset Protection. It's a financial services firm located in Chicago, Illinois, in the States. And pretty much we help clients in all 50 states and sometimes in Canada. And we pretty much help them with one type of solution. It's called the infinite banking concept, also known as the bank on yourself strategy. And we pretty much help them grow safe and predictable wealth while also taking control of their finances. Um, and, and a lot of our clients are real estate investors and business owners and full-time employees. So we're pretty much setting up these accounts to help people grow more money regardless of market conditions. That's who we are and kind of what we do. Lovely. I'd love to dive, dive deep into that for, for everyone's sake and to understand that better. So my name is Fredrik Sandvall, a sale entrepreneur born in Sweden, normally working in uh, London, UK, uh, or anywhere else in the world. So I love property, I like helping others, I like finance. Uh, so right now, very much in a transition where I consider to buy more parts of businesses and work in, the, uh, again, the more global setting, which I've done a lot of before. So let's take it from there. And uh, let's explore what is a bank? What does the word bank mean to you before we jump into any other concepts? Yeah, so it's actually a change. The, the the idea of the definition to me of what a bank means change over time. Before, I would just think yeah. of a large organization and they have a lot of money and then they loan out money to people. They store people's money. But that's changed after I've learned more about banks. And now uh, I think a bank is simply just a middle person, a middleman between people who have money and people who need money. And they yeah. charge people fees on both sides. And sometimes banks don't even have any money at all. They just kind of leverage from one hand to the next hand and and use other people's money in between. Yeah, I can completely relate to that because I have been involved in both crowdfunding companies as well as like finance brokering. And I like to think and act like a bank. And Mm -hmm. can you do what a bank do in a legal way and, and leverage that system? to ultimately help people on both the lending and the borrowing side. Of course, Mm -hmm. that carries some risks and Mm -hmm. uh, it does require quite a lot of knowledge. And depending on where you are in the world, it will also require different kind of legislation to manage that. Mm -hmm. But you have found a way to work around that or to find, uh, to be your own bank. How does that work? And what is that all about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I do encourage a lot of clients to become their own bankers, to have kind of self-banking principles. And I'm not talking about, you know, a licensed uh, chartered bank. I'm talking more about a a principle or a theoretical standpoint of more so and and, and a concept too. So it's a concept called the infinite banking concept. It is kind of a counterintuitive approach. It is the utilization of dividend paying whole life insurance. So people are always like, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about banking. Now we're talking about life insurance. And there's a way that combine them together. And there's a reason for combining them together. Yep. Pretty much whole life insurance has two segments or two parts. If structured the right way, it has two parts. It has cash value 
and then it has life insurance, almost like a savings account inside the life insurance policy. So I help clients build up these policies, grow them, and then eventually they start, they start to earn interest and dividends every year and they compound and the cash value grows. And now the banking part comes in is where you have access to this money. You, are, you yeah. have the ability to borrow against it, against the funds without interrupting the growth. That right there is the banking part. The banks pretty much have money. They borrow in different areas, but no matter what, their reserves keep growing, which allows them to become more profitable every single year. And people can apply this. And you don't have to be in the banking industry. You don't have to have hundreds of millions of dollars. You could do this with any amount of money, pretty much just having the ability from the hand that you earn your money in to the to the hand that you're going to spend it in before you uh, spend it. You can have it sit in the whole life policy and then borrow against it and then use that Yep. over and over again. So you become yep. your own source of financing while still growing cash reserves. Yes. I, I have come across this uh, a few times before, especially from the US. And you even have got like your own uh, wrappers, the right products to do this. Uh, mm -hmm. You can apply the same theories in other countries as well, but it will not be the same tax benefits as you have in the US. So what is the actual principle called in the US for US listeners? Um, yeah, yeah. So pretty much the... the um, you could use this pretty much on a test. There's some tax benefits, like there's the it grows tax deferred, and then it's tax free retirement too. When you take the money out in the later years, it comes out tax free. Yeah. So pretty much, and you're right. You could apply this um, in other places in the world, but the tax benefits might not be exactly. um, there present. But here's the thing, though: there there are some situations where clients, for example, in in Germany or Switzerland, will own a business in the U.S. and then because they own a business in the US, they can get a, a US life insurance policy and the policy is pretty much structured in the US. And then that can have tax-free tax, tax -free growth uh, as well as tax-favored benefits there. So there are ways to do it. And it, it's kind of tricky when you're out of the country, yep. but it's possible and you can still apply certain tax benefits even if you're not in the United States. Exactly. And, and for those who are interested about getting a, an investor visa or other things, just check back in the backlog of Investing You podcast with uh, where we had Laura on just a few episodes. So how do you invest yourself? What do you invest oh. into? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, definitely. So I pretty much have numerous policies, these whole life policies, and I am going to be a real estate investor. So I'm going to start investing in real estate in the Chicagoland area, more on the oh. active side. And then after that, my goal is to work with also syndicators, real estate syndicators on the passive income side. Yep. So I have a couple of network right now and I'm Great. in the process right now of getting involved with passive. So I want to do passive investing, real estate investing and active real estate investing. Perfect. Um, like mm -hmm. the sound of that. Yeah. I, what I like about Chicago is the affordability. So mm -hmm. because the properties are, again, for the global audience, the, the real estate prices are quite affordable while the rents are still quite high. That means you actually can get the quite high yield. Would you agree with my uh, novice uh, from a very far away analysis? Am I right or am I wrong or where are we? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's possible to get about whatever the value is of your property when you buy it. It's possible to get like 1% of that every month. Yes, um, so for exactly. example, if, if you bought a, a multifamily building for $600,000, you can probably get $6,000 a month in rental income, which I think is pretty good and decent. Yes, it is. And it might be a little bit different, especially in Europe where it's more, there's less properties because it's a smaller land. So there's going to be a high, much higher cost to, especially in higher metropolitan areas, like in London and outside of yeah, uh, bigger cities and in Western Europe, it's going to cost a lot more money for real estate because there's such a higher demand for real yes. estate. Whereas Chicago is one city with 2 million people. And then outside of Chicago is 130 small cities outside of there. So it's an eight, eight million uh, metropolitan area 
Uh, so it's a lot of land and also a lot of kind of large city, you know, as well. Yes. So yes. it kind of has its advantages and disadvantages from that perspective. Yeah. So that means that's roughly half the size of uh, the population in, in London. And just to give you, especially for the international audience, a, a range. So really prime location, London, you can have as low yields as like 1% per annum. Mm-hmm. Yes, you heard right, which is not very sexy or funny, but instead you've got much higher capital growth in a normal mm-hmm. year. While if you focus on more advanced strategies, you can reach double digits in London, but it's hard. So usually if you like to do that, you need to go to more far away mm-hmm. remote areas. But uh, the, the mm-hmm. benchmark there, 1% per month, that's really good uh, as uh, any kind of investment because that means you can finance it in a smarter and better way. So yeah, I like the sound of that. Good luck with your future plans and uh, what am i up to so i have from a real estate point of view uh, accidentally got into it because of my wife uh, many years ago so i've been managing commercial property and uh, they say that money doesn't grow on trees it actually does Uh, (laughs) at least the paper that you print unless it's plastic money Uh, Mm -hmm. so uh, quite uh, a sizable property in Sweden. So just to give you like uh, uh, an understanding of high level numbers. So assume you've got like 300 hectares of forest. That's like mm-hmm. 600 uh, acres, give or take. Mm-hmm. And uh, assume that just to give you some uh, mathematical example, uh, the forest takes like 100 years from when you plant it to when you harvest it. Mm-hmm. So that means if we have like 250 uh, hectares of forest. Mm. That means on an average year, two and a half hectares becomes possible to harvest, so to speak, mm-hmm. like if you just average everything out. So in a normal year, the the, va- the passive value from just trees growing would be worth like 25,000 uh, or 30, 40,000 uh, US dollars mm-hmm. from doing virtually nothing in the city on your hands. How would that make a difference? Probably a bit. So just having like tens of thousands per year, passive income from that. So it means that one year we we take nothing and uh, three years later, we can take like $100,000 uh, and mm-hmm. then replant. That doesn't cost too much, but it, it is a, it's a nice system. So actually land and forest can actually give a cash flow. Plus also... Uh, I used it from the point of view to to leverage to buy buy other assets as well to take a loan mm-hmm. on on that property and put that into as equity into something else. So yeah, that's kind of how I started. I've become much more advanced since, but uh, that was the first few years. Uh, still oh, doing wow. that. So yeah, but now mainly I have done property things in uh, London, but I've sold a quite sizable portfolio very recently for different reasons so yeah mm-hmm. so i post post right away like 80 keys in the last eight weeks to someone else so that feels very strange a uh, big relief from the responsibility point of view and also i've lowered my loans with many millions and that's also quite nice but uh, mm-hmm. at the same time the future growth i would rather have that to, than to have sold that but uh, it's something i usually don't do i usually hoard assets buy it and just keep it for the long term but this is a new strategy of actually selling and freeing up funds for for other priorities basically mm-hmm. so slightly yeah, like different that. slightly different so yeah 
How did you come into the idea of uh, finance? Have you always been curious? So yeah, I've always wanted to be a problem solver. And for a lot of people, money tends to be a problem. Yeah. So I've always wanted to be a kind of a problem solver from in, in terms of money. And I got into insurance uh, to help a lot of people with uh, protecting what matters to them most and, and things like that, which with some financial planning components, because people are also cool. not only thinking about protecting what other items or their assets, but also how much is it going to cost? And then comparison to, is it worth it to even protect it against it? So I, I got into that field kind of early. And then I just found out about this concept, the bank on yourself concept from reading a book called the bank on yourself revolution. Yeah. Uh, there's also another book called becoming your own baker by Nelson Nash. And I'll pretty much, um, I can, if the listeners reach out to us, I can actually send them a free copy of the book, becoming your own baker right. by Nelson Nash as a, as a PDF. I could just yep. email it to them. Um, and they don't have to schedule a phone call. They could just call, reach out to us, ask for the, uh, for the book and I'll send it to them. Perfect. Perfect. I have come across both those names before, and you can also find some quite interesting educational uh, YouTube videos from them mm-hmm. as well. So well, that's very generous. We like resources. We like knowledge. So thank you for that offer. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, good, good. Uh, I noticed that you have also done an MBA mm-hmm. and now just let think back for a second. Uh, what did you really use from your master business administration after you actually did it? So what was the most key takeaway for you? And I'll share the same from my side in a second. Yeah. So um, it was a little bit more on a thinking process. It wasn't just more about the, all the business stuff I learned came after when I started working in yep. the industry, yep. but more so doing the MBA was more of thinking outside the box and thinking in different ways. Like we didn't really have that many exams. It was more so projects, presentations, proposals. Yeah. Um, well, one of the main things I took away from it is while you're, you know, you're presenting something, you're thinking of what the other person's thinking about what benefits that person, and then you address those benefits. So for example, if you're giving a business proposal and you want to raise capital, instead of you thinking about you know, how much uh, this person can give me, like as if it's a charity, you flip it the other way. And instead you're thinking about this person, the investor, and instead of them having their money sitting in a bank account, not earning any interest, rather you have the money sit with you in your yeah. business and potentially multiply their money exactly. over time. Uh, so you're thinking about what the other person wants and needs and you're addressing it. That's pretty much the biggest thing I took away from MBA. Yeah. Yeah. I think from my point of view, it's just a really great mind because I took it a bit later in life that it's great to be able to manage multiple workflows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had like a quite practical outlook as well, which was quite a lot of consulting projects as well, which I really enjoyed. Uh, mm-hmm. It was also quite international. So we did also some travel as part of it. And it's a very international class. And since I very much, operate on a global basis that was a, a great learning and also fantastic to be able to go to china singapore mm-hmm. india and just to to hang out with business friends who are now really high up in society because they've been working hard since the mba so another nice benefit so uh, i i have got the question like was it worth it from my point of view yes it was absolutely what would you say to that question was it worth it the mba yeah uh, t- I- time and money point of view yeah, I, I think yeah, it was worth it for sure as far as um, just kind of learning more about yourself and learning yeah. how to learn. I like yeah. from that perspective. But right. at the same time, I, I would never um, 
like for example, if I was going to hire somebody who had an MBA, I wouldn't just hire them for their MBA. I would also hire them for their experience too, yes. that they, they've also done too. So it's yes. kind of, it goes alongside your experience and it should never be in lieu of experience or instead of experience. It should be kind of alongside it and it complements. Um, and it's actually, I, I've, I've even seen from other people where just having an MBA alone without any experience at all yeah, it could doesn't make work. you, yeah. does, doesn't work. And it could actually yeah. make you a worse candidate than somebody who just has like a bachelor's degree in business because yes. the, the MBA might be overqualified Yes. for the for the job so you always need that work experience alongside kind of the, the mba i think it works it's a nice blend that way yeah i completely agree so have you worked in the, the finance industry beyond insurance beyond your own company at the moment yeah so all the finance work i've done is in financial services and insurance kind of kept yep. together so um all auto insurance homeowners insurance health insurance insurance for retirees um, whole life insurance, and then kind of the financial aspect from with using whole life insurance. That's pretty much all my experience within the financial services industry that is within sense. the insurance segment. So I never really worked in the banking industry. I never worked in like for a hedge fund um, or, or loan processing or mortgages, mostly just in the insurance side. I've worked in connection with all those, with those things, but more so I, I stayed in my, lane, in my lane. And I kind of think um, like some people tell me like, why don't I do other things too with my business? Like, why don't I do like financial counseling? Why don't I do like credit score repair and and other projects like that. But I just think from a marketing standpoint, it's better to have one niche, focus on that niche and like specialize in it well and done. get really good yeah. at that. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because I'm doing too many things, which means you give a quite confused <laughs> message to, to the marketplace. So mm-hmm. you will most likely get more inbound traffic than I would because uh, simply people uh, don't see as clear what I do. Because I do many things so until mm-hmm. recently i was involved in 10 different companies so you can oh, wow. just imagine that like portfolio mindset or more much more of like entrepreneur founder owner perspective than than working too much in the businesses but mm-hmm. uh, it's different levels at different times of life i i think and, uh, and that's also one reason why it is harder to be employable Mm-hmm. Yes, to be employable when you've been an entrepreneur for too long time, because that means that you are you are setting your own roles, standards. Mm-hmm. You help your team and so on, which means even if I grew up in like large organizations like uh, the Swedish Defense Forces, mm-hmm. Special Forces, and so on, mm-hmm. from there to be your your own boss for many years, and then from there to try to go back, I think that can be. Uh, a, a tough wake-up call for some people. So, yeah. What do you think about my uh, self-analysis? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like as somebody who, uh, as somebody who's self-employed right now, I yeah. think it's difficult for me to go out and and find a job from also yes. from, from this way. And then also from the other way too, from the employer's perspective, a lot of employers don't like to hire people who ran their own businesses because like you said, they have their own rules. They have their yep. own way of thinking. Yep. And then also too, like, especially some industries are very sensitive to um, competition. So like Indeed. in the in financial services industry, nobody's going to hire me, bring me on as an employee. And then this way, what if I take, you know, what they doing, what they're doing. And then I go and I start my own company again. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. That, that's, I'm not, that's something I'm not, I won't do that. No, no, but I, I know, I know the concern. I understand what you mean. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, many people are really protective about things like financial information. Uh, mm-hmm. I usually find it very easy for people to disclose information to me, which means mm-hmm. I can help them much, much, much better and easier. How do you find talking other people's money with other people? Do you find it interesting or easy or hard? 
It's a good question. So the, it, it's difficult. You're, you're right. Um, but it's necessary. And what we yes. always do is, for example, with clients, before we present a solution, before we say, hey, this is the best idea, before we do any of that, we do a full, thorough 60 to 90 minute financial analysis. Good. We get to understand the client. We get to know what they want, how much money they have, how much they're making, how much they already have set aside for retirement accounts, they own real estate. We go, we take a look at everything they're doing. And then after that, then we make us a, a solution and we connect the solution with their specified needs and wants. So everybody's going to have a different solution because everybody has different financial, um, th th their analysis is going to be different from one another. Yes. So pretty much we help them structure a policy that's relevant to them. And for a lot of people that want to skip the analysis and then go right into the solution, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't help them. Yeah. So we would turn them down and say, we can't, sorry, we cannot help you because we don't know their specific situation. And that only happens about two or 3% of the time, 97, 98% of the time, people, when they reach out to us, they're ready to go for a full financial analysis because they know what they're, they, they know what they're getting into. It's like also yes. the same thing as going to like, for example, if you needed legal help, you wouldn't just call a lawyer and then ask the lawyer, should I do option A or option B? Because the lawyer can't, doesn't know your specific situation. They need to kind of investigate and understand more and yeah. then be able to make a recommendation. Actually, if you just call a lawyer and you say, can I do option A or option B? And the lawyer just says, oh, do option B. And it turns out to be the wrong option. You can hold the lawyer now accountable. Same thing with accountants, same yes. thing with doctors. There's a professional liability for the professional. So you need to understand the client, what they need, what they want, document it and then make the recommendation. So that way you can also save yourself too from, from um, errors and omissions and, and malpractice. Indeed, indeed, yeah. And of course, what we're talking about here is having different regulation, different countries. I'm very much involved and understand this from an advisor point of view and what I can and what I can't do in, in the United Kingdom and Sweden and many other mm -hmm. countries. So I often uh, disclaim that my advice is not really advice that I should uh, search for uh, mm -hmm. solicitors and accountants and tax advisors and specialists to to verify uh, mm -hmm. whatever plan they come up with but again we work with different things mm -hmm. i i mainly work with helping people to get uh, return on their funds so often people mm -hmm. park a certain amount of money uh, with me uh, or any of my companies and i help them to get return on that from business investments or mm -hmm. real estate in a very similar way as you consider to do with syndication, uh, mm -hmm. but on a smaller scale, but then the multiple projects instead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you got any role models or people you look up to in terms of how you learn about real estate? Okay. Uh, who inspired you so far? Real estate. Um, it's a good question. Uh, of course, Grant Cardone. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it, one of the things I, I loved about what he said is, um, he was talking about this is a couple of years ago, and he was talking yeah. about transition transitioning into um, real estate. And somebody was like, "Why are you getting into real estate if you love you know sales training so much?" And he's like, "I do. I love sales training and sales coaching, coaching so much. But I'm not going to be a billionaire no, selling exactly. training courses. I'm going to be a billionaire in real estate, and that's the route I want to go." Yeah. So. I like that. And he was saying, I still have a passion. I still like what I do, but I'm also looking to become a billionaire. And he, and he said, you should also find out in your industry, what makes you a billionaire. If your industry doesn't make you a billionaire, you need to do other things that yeah. will help you get there. Yeah. Yeah. I like the sound of that. Actually, I think Cardone was on, uh, I think episode number 16 or something like that on okay. investing you. So you check, check that out. Uh, and normally I have two, my two teenage sons as co-hosts as well on, on this podcast, but not today. So I also like from the point of view that 
he's applying his sales and negotiation skills mm -hmm. on, on a bigger scale. And I like that. And mm -hmm. they can always say there are pros and cons with each and every individual, including the two of us and Cordo. Uh, we all do things different, but I like growth. I like expansion. So I can't help myself from thinking like, how can I 10x or whatever mm -hmm. of the value of this? Because it forces you to look for a different network. It forces you to, to find different solutions. Then if you ask like, okay, this year I'll increase with 3%. Mm -hmm. You think very differently. How can you multiply instead of just incremental, small, compounded changes? Oh, oh yeah, that, that's that's the, the idea of 10xing your business. And from the book, the 10x rule, yeah, it's yeah. helped me a lot in my business because I, instead of, for example, thinking about how do I, um, like for example, when I was getting on po podcasting as a guest, I wanted to spread the message about what I do and promote my business. And I was getting on like one or two podcasts a month, and I and I took pretty much the formula are I'm going to reach out to X amount of hosts with this yes. script. Why yes. not multiply it by 10? Why not multiply yeah. it by a hundred? Yeah. This way I can get on 10 times or a hundred times more uh, podcasts. And hopefully the, the, the goal is to get on 10, to get 10 times more leads and then hopefully 10 times more revenue. So it's all proportional. Yes. And then if you could pretty much just take everything you're doing, put it in brackets, like in basic algebra, you put yeah. everything in brackets, yeah. you multiply it by 10, then you multiply every single one of those things inside there by 10. Uh, so it's the same idea. I love that. Yeah, I love the tennis yes. rule. I'm a, a firm believer of it. Yeah, yeah. One of the companies I've been working with recently as a, as a advisor and also investor into the company, I put in roughly 50,000 when I started and it's now worth uh, times 10 just <laughs> three years later. But I've helped them on the journey as well. So if you can 10 times the value, well, like what's stopping you from doing that one more time? Uh -huh. Oh yeah, definitely. So, so that's very much the journey now. Like, how can we go from ten million valuation to hundred million plus? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and that's where it gets much more interesting and fun. Um, but ultimately, you like to own those companies in full. But usually, you're better off by not owning everything. So, yeah. Have you heard the statement? Uh, to own nothing but control everything. Have you heard that before? Yeah, yeah. I forgot where I heard that from. Um, I, I can't remember. I, I heard it recently, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I understand that. Yes, definitely. Yes. So, um, and that's so, more of like, so um, what does, what does it mean to you? Do you actually need to own the property? Because I've been very traditional. Like I like to own the land. Like I like to own the walls and the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Do you actually need to do that to make money? From, yes. from my network, what I've seen with my clients, no, you don't have to own real estate to make money from real estate. Yeah. For some people, for example, somebody who has a full-time job, who's like a, you know, a dentist or a doctor, they, they work full-time, they don't need to go out and quit their job and then go do real estate. You know, They can just take from their income and then allocate, You know, like I'm going to just take $50,000 from my bank account. Instead of it sitting on my bank account, not earning any interest, I'm going to just pass it over to somebody who's a syndicator, somebody who collects funds from numerous people. Yep. They're going to pile that up together with like a million, millions of other dollars, you know, like an insurance company would or a bank, you know, thinking like a bank. Yes. And then they go and they buy a large property, work on it. And then every month, you know, the dentist or a doctor just gets a monthly distribution or annual distribution. And then now they can keep doing that with other syndicators and other people. And they can grow this huge portfolio without ever even seeing a property in person. Yeah, so I love exactly. the idea of passive investing. And I like the idea too, of you don't have to just, you don't have to always touch the property you're working on. Now, this is just my, my opinion. You know, some people would say, no, I, I only invest in things that I can go and drive to and physically yeah. touch. Like some, yeah. a lot of people in the Chicago market 
only want to do business actively, active real estate investors, and then only buildings and properties that they can go to, they can drive to, and they won't invest in anything else that's not driving distance. That's just their perspective. Yes. But I do like the idea of passive in, uh, income and, and growing it too. And then also too, uh, the ability to kind of take a dollar, put it somewhere, grow it, and then take the growth and then grow that over and over again. And now you have this cycle that you, you would have hundreds of millions of dollars from a $50,000 investment or something like that. Exactly. You know, exactly. it just keeps growing and compounding over and over again. A quite popular strategy amongst people I'm working with in England is to do so-called purchase lease options. So they basically, they rent it and then they rent it to tenants. Uh-huh. And then in the end, after X amount of years, they will actually buy it. Uh, is that something you come across? Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, definitely. I've heard of uh, something similar to that where you're, you're leasing and then, yeah, lease to Owen yes, and then kind so, of yeah, yeah, almost like an arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it before. Yeah, but it, it's really fun with, with, with real estate because you could do so many interesting things. One deal which did not materialize, but it was agreed at least, was to uh, think property solving mm-hmm. problems, basically. So uh, a company... Uh, was introduced to myself they had like a tax liability of a couple of hundred thousand pounds which they needed to pay mm-hmm. uh, meanwhile they had a very tired and distressed property which had like quite good location and further potential so what i was doing is structuring a deal where okay you can have a loan to pay your tax debt uh, if I can have like an option to buy your land so mm-hmm. I had the option to buy the land for uh, for a, a X amount of money, uh, and and the right to have that option was just costing me one equivalent to one dollar basically. Oh wow! That I f- helped them to fix the problem to get the money, mm-hmm. which I could recoup from the property eventually, if yeah, if yeah. I had to. Uh, meanwhile, I could risk free control the property, so again mm-hmm. control it without owning it, uh, mm-hmm. to do the planning and so on, do the plans to be do a high-rise building. For mm, okay. reason, that deal never materialized, but that's a great example of how I, for virtually $1 and some legal fees, could control a, a $10 million plus deal. Wow, okay. Yeah, with, that's really smart. With, yeah, yeah. With multi-million in profit. So basically, I could create 80 flats, uh, no money of my own, basically. Wow, okay. Uh, unfortunately it didn't happen uh, all the way to the end but it was a great way of solving problems on multi levels and I, I love that uh, uh-huh. so yeah uh, lots of things to learn in property <laughs> yeah I, I love I love hearing stories like this it's creative yeah. because yeah. it takes away from where we're taught like a lot of people think like they can't do any investing until they have a lot of money and that's not true, right? There's a lot of leverage out there. And I love the word leverage. You know, as an entrepreneur, I think the word leverage is a fascinating word. And especially what you could do when you leverage other people's money. Yeah, you can apply to time, knowledge, network, reach, mm. uh, anything really. And uh, I've taught my kids early on that it, it is a good word. <laughs> it can mm-hmm. sometimes work in your disfavor as well, but that's okay. That's a different story. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on the positive things. So uh, I've asked you lots of questions. Have you got any questions for me? Yeah, definitely. So you um, you live sometimes in London and sometimes in Sweden, right? Yeah, that's right. Where, where do you where do you prefer more? What do you like more? Uh, lifestyle. Uh, I like uh, the wilderness and the forest. So that 
I do get in Sweden, but I also like the the bus of really high intensity deal making, which I really get in London. So I like to have the mix of the both. I would like to have one without the other. So okay. that's why I have uh, a life hack, which I apply. I try to work really hard when I'm away in mm-hmm. London, uh, which is my physical real home. But then I try to work really hard there so I can take it almost half of my life not working so Mm -hmm. i work hard half of the time which means i can take basically a couple of annual leaves leaves uh, Mm every year so three four five six months holiday a year but the other half i work much harder than most people would Mm -hmm. Uh, and by doing that i actually had a couple of decades of holidays to my life but i tried to be disciplined when i actually do work so I, i can recommend that okay Okay, nice. Okay. Yeah, it's very different. Very different. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see the pros and cons on each side, right? The yeah. the relaxing side, and then also the financial beneficial side to uh, being in London. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. What are some of your hobbies? Uh, I like uh, sports right now on the lake outside, where I can go skiing and ice skating, mountain biking. So the other day I was mountain biking on the ice while the snow was melting. So I had like lots of water on the, the lakes. I've never been so wet in a bike ride before. It was raining from above and beneath. Uh, that was a very <laughs> refreshing, chilly experience, but uh, I would not like to have it undone. So yeah, I like sports. I really like travel. Uh, so I've been to 80 plus countries and I will never oh, nice. stop doing that. COVID is restricting me a bit at the moment, mm-hmm. but even despite that, uh, I still move about quite a lot. Okay. Where's yeah. your favorite place to visit? Uh, favorite countries, I think, having been so many, I think Thailand and Lebanon are up there. Uh-huh. So I'll give a question back to you. Uh, your name gives away uh, most likely Arabic origin. And also mm-hmm. you speak Arabic. Uh, where, where's your origin way back when? Yeah, originally my parents are from Palestine. And All right, then they yeah, were, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, been, I've been living in that part of the world as well. So both, yeah, Syria... Lebanon, Israel, and I've been traveling in the Palestinian territories as well quite a few times. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you speak any Arabic? Uh, yeah, I swear Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot most of it because I've been living in, in Lebanon, a uh, place like Pakistan as well. So yeah, I've been oh, nice. using Arabic quite a lot, but I I've, I've forgot most of it. But my hack how to learn language is to get uh, a very attractive teacher that motivates you to go to class. That's what I did. <laughs> good, good, nice, nice. What what brought you to the Middle East? Isn't that unusual? Uh, it is unusual, but uh, in the end of the day, what brought me there was I was uh, from a young age. I joined the special forces, and from special forces, I joined the intelligence service. So I was working in the Middle East, working with the information gathering, um, uh, both for host nation and and uh, and so on, but also for United Nations. So I was working as a military observer in Lebo- in the last Lebanese-Israel war. And uh, I've been working in quite a few countries around there okay. quite a few times. But also I've been doing like consulting and investment work there as well, which is very different. And I just early today, actually, I sent a message to a guy in, in Bay- Beirut and asked mm-hmm. like, hey there, uh, do you know anyone <laughs> who might want to have uh, some opportunities uh, for partnership? So yeah, you never know. 
I like Lebanon, as I said. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Lebanon too. I just feel so bad for like the financial system yeah, right now. That's yeah, happening. yeah, yeah. The, the, and, and the refugee situation there is, is horrendous where they got so many people who are uh, displaced uh, who mm-hmm. ended up there. Mm-hmm. And I met lots of people from, uh, from uh, yeah, many Palestinian people living in Lebanon as well. I've been to mm-hmm. many of the, uh, see many of, of the, even the Palestinian camps uh, in Lebanon as well. Uh, and very generous and kind people. So I've enjoyed lots of good food while being, uh, meeting up with families there. Nice, nice. If you were to go back to the Middle East, which country would you go to? Uh, if I would go back to? The Middle East? The Middle East. Uh, yeah, probably the country I will most likely visit the earliest will probably be Dubai because it's so easy to get to. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I would like to find many reasons to go back to both Lebanon and Israel for different reasons. I've been mm-hmm. living in both those two countries later too. Okay, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What about yourself? Where would you like to travel when COVID is over and you might have some spare money and time? Well, uh, I really want to go to South America. So my wife yeah. and I last year in 2020 we went to Costa Rica and Mexico in the same Great. year. Nice. And I want to go further south. I want to go to like Colombia. I really yeah. want to go yeah. to Medellin and Bogota um, and also like Chile. And then also I want to go to, I've been to um, in the UK, I've been to the UK, France, Spain, nice. Germany. Nice. I want to check out Norway, Sweden, Finland, Cool. you know, yeah. Scandinavian prob- countries. Probably got f- five plus extra bedrooms in this house here. So just give me a shout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I like traveling. It's good. And also another top tip for people listening in is if you really like to go to a place, why not try to get some kind of like official reason to go there? So mm-hmm. in the last two years, I've been to, for example, China, uh, Australia, uh, Thailand, while I was doing some job there, some kind of project. So someone actually paid me to go there basically and to live there to be there to fix that problem and then just extend it with a few days and then you got yourself uh, a paid holiday uh mm-hmm. even might make a, a profit on your holiday so mm-hmm. top top tip you'll have to go to many countries uh, that's one way to do it oh wow okay yeah <laughs> yeah yeah all right cool so if people like to follow your work and find you out online what is the easiest way to find you yeah, the easiest is uh, our website. It's finassetprotection.com, F-I-N, assetprotection.com. And then also uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Sari Ibrahim. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and you can connect with me either way. Perfect. And the easiest way to get hold of myself is usually also on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, check out the, the the podcast. We've got quite a good backlog of 100 plus episodes with interesting guests. So yeah, I think we quite quite a lot of things and thanks you for setting this up. What time is it for you at the moment? It's nine o'clock in the evening here. Oh, it's uh, 10 till uh, two o'clock PM central time. All right, cool, perfect. So you can absolutely work across time zones. You can connect with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. One way to do that is to listen to podcasts and check out people on social media. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on uh, the, the Dual podcast. Sorry, and uh, I'll catch you later. Thank you, Frederick. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.